Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Book Club. First rule of Book Club is you must always talk about Book Club. Second rule of Book Club is tell everyone about Book Club. Hello and welcome to IRC Book Club. Today, Michael and I are wheeling out the big guns, or at least we thought we might have been. Well, we're wheeling out steak and chips, aren't we? <laughs> steak and chips it is. It's interesting because somebody sent me a note. Uh, Paul sent me a note. because I, I put a picture of Challenger Sale. You know, to give the game away, I've, I've read it all. I gave it six out of ten. And he went, how come you gave six out of ten to steak and chips? And I think we're going to find that out. <laughs> yeah. So I mean, the let's Challenger not do a Sale. Summary, let's not do a summary now, Johnny. We've got to go Absolutely through it. Absolutely not. So the Challenger Sale, I mean, if you read the back cover, what's the secret to sales success? If you're like most business leaders, you'd say it's fundamentally about relationships, and you'd be wrong. The best salespeople don't just build relationships with customers, they challenge them. Well, let's start with the front cover, Johnny. The most important <clears throat> advance in selling for many years. Neil, Rackham, Neil, said Rackham. <laughs> Neil Rackham said that. This is big raps, isn't it? Matthew yeah. Dixon, Brent Adamson, and their colleagues at CEB have studied the performance of thousands of sales reps worldwide. What they've discovered may be the biggest shock the conventional sales wisdom in decades. The challenger sale argues that the classic relationship building is the wrong approach. Every sales rep in the world falls into one of five distinct profiles. While all of these types of reps can deliver average performance, only one, the challenger, delivers constantly high performance. Instead of leading with information about their company and its solutions, challengers provide customers with surprising insights about how they can save or make money. They tailor their message to the customer's needs. They are assertive, pushing back when necessary and take control of the sale. Exactly. And I, I, you know, so I shouldn't judge you, but I'll tell you what I think about. I think the, the title appeals to this false machismo that exists in the sales world. That really irritates me about the book. I don't I, think there I, is I much machismo in the sales world. I think, the, absolutely I think sales has become, I, I think that the profession has become, if we drew a, a macho graph of the sales profession, from 1920 onwards, I would say the machismo in selling is at its lowest ever point, Michael. Possibly, but there's still a lot of people who go, yeah, I'm a challenger. Uh, uh, yeah, but there's lots of people, Mike, that say they're... I read the book. There's, lot, there's lots of people who say they're solution salespeople who've never read solution selling. There's lots of people who say they're challengers who've never read the challenger sale. Yeah. They just yeah. say it's anyway. bollocks that they come out with, isn't it? Yes, it is. Let's get onto the book. Otherwise, I'm going to end up on my high horse. About I got told so, off for being on my high horse yesterday on LinkedIn. Uh, ref- I saw that. Re- some, some person had put something about how she's got to go to the pub all the time. Well, no, she said, now that, now that we're in um, a 10 o'clock curfew, Boris has basically authorised daytime binge drinking. Yeah, 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 exactly. So I, to be fair, ripped her a bit of a new one on, on that subject. Um, and uh, it didn't go down too well, although a lot of people did like my comment. But then a few of the, a few, what was interesting was well, the, how divisive it was between young and between middle-aged people I was gonna and say people exactly in their that. 20s. I was going to say exactly that. It was a very, very divisive argument, wasn't it? So let's go back to Challenger. Uh, you know me, I like to read the foreword. I underlined the first four words in the foreword, actually. What have you written? So let me get to my forward page. The history of sales has been in steady progress, interrupted by a 
a few real breakthroughs that have changed the whole direction of the profession. And I thought, really? I just don't think that's true at all. Few real breakthroughs that have changed the whole direction of the profession. I just, I, I just thought that was nonsense. Why? Well, oh. What's your point? My point is that they're saying that this is the real breakthrough. Um, I, I, that's I what he's alluding to. What's interesting, and I'm going to talk a lot about... You know when you I hold your it. book up like that, I can't see you because it... The, it the, the, doesn't the, matter because um, we're not using video. Don't people want to see me? No. Oh. Um, so, yeah, real breakthrough. I think in 20, 2009, 2010, I think this was a breakthrough. I think 10 years ago, I think this really was a big breakthrough for people. It just so happens that the, 10, the last 10 years, Mike, have been so unbelievably accelerated in so many different ways that this perhaps is now a little bit dated. And we'll, and we'll get to that. Come on, then. Let's keep going through the uh, forward. Yeah. So, um, they, they, it, it gives some examples here of the five buckets of salespeople that they've put in yes. the book. The hard yeah. worker, the challenger, the relationship builder, the lone wolf, and the reactive problem solver. I want to ask you, Mike, if we were hiring now, let's say we said, you know, you and I are on a bit of a plan at the moment. We're hiring operational resource. When the operational resource is up and running, probably the next big challenge for us will be to hire some additional sales resource to complement you and I on winning more new client opportunity to feed the operational resource. So we'll be back in hiring salespeople. Which one are you going to hire? A hard I'm worker? Go- I, 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 I'm going to hire the person that gets the results. All right, but you've got one of these categories. Which one do you think you'd want in your team? Which one in your gang right now? Hard worker, a challenger, a relationship builder, a lone wolf, or a reactive problem solver? Uh, I just don't know, really, because there's none that stick out to me. I, I, you know, I would think I'm a fairly hard worker who tells people the truth, and I'm happy on my own. So I'd probably hire that. Yeah, I'd want a mixture of the lone wolf but, and the hard worker. But then this morning, I sat in front of my computer at quarter past seven, client emailed me like uh, 16 minutes past seven and I've spent an hour swapping emails with it, with him, helping him sort a problem. So actually I was a reactive problem solver. So what you're saying is you can't really categorize people in these buckets because they're interchangeable with context. I don't see why you, why you'd want to, why would you want to, what's the benefit in, in putting them in buckets? How does it help you? I, I don't think it does. I think you hire the right man for the job at the right time. Yeah, I don't see why put somebody in a bucket. Based on an analysis of their skills, abilities, and their fit to the role. And I I wrote further down here, they talk about what they call the high versus low performer trap. Or or this is what Neil Rackham's referring to that they're talking about in the book. A large percentage of the research into effective selling compares high performers with low performers. In the early years of my own research, I did the same thing. As a result, I learned a lot about low performers. When you ask people to compare their rock stars with their losers, you can find that they can dissect their losers with surgical precision, but find it hard, if not impossible, to put their finger on exactly what makes their rock stars rock. I put, we're missing far too many key factors here. Volume of leads, brand, quality of the product, the type of accounts. So many people that you and I meet that people deem rock stars aren't rock stars. And so many people that people deem losers are rock stars in shit environments or situations. Well, in wrong environments, aren't they? 
Yes. How often do we meet a guy where you think, I don't understand how it's not working out for you, your quality. Yeah, but actually when, you dissect, actually, when you dissect it, you realise, oh, so he picked up a load of accounts that somebody else had milked stupid in the quarter before. There's not much you can sell to him or he's in the wrong environment or he didn't realise quite how ancient the product was when he got there. But people are sat there. I'm talking to a candidate at the moment, I was speaking to him this morning. He's going to resign from a job today. And uh, it, it, he's in the wrong environment, but is a rock star. And everywhere else he's been, he's been a rock star. Yeah, so I, I don't often. think it's fair to call people rock stars and losers. I agree, yeah, completely. I, I, think I, 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 think I, wouldn't, I wouldn't categorise people in that way. I think that in and of itself is a bit preposterous. Really, because I, agree. I would say so many of the people, I would say 95% of the candidates we deal with in the right environment will do an all right job for someone. They'll be there or thereabouts to target. I agree. Okay. And then we've got the introduction. Oh God, are we not even past, uh, past that yet? <laughs> uh, <Tom. laughs> um, we call these winning reps challengers and this is their story. And then we're on chapter one, the evolving journey of solution selling. I thought his definition of solution selling on page six was excellent, actually. Did you like that? Yeah, solution selling comes in many flavours, but generally describes the migration from a focus on a transactional sales individual products, usually based on price or volume, to a focus on a broad-based consultative sale of bundles of products and services. That is the best definition I can ever remember reading. How many... Okay, Mike. So here was my first thought was, how many of our customers are actually really in the solution selling business? Not many. Really? Not many. Not many, Not I don't think. Nope. Most of them sell product. You know, that, you know salesforce.com is not a client of ours, to be clear. Um, I, I suspect, it's a supplier? No, they're a supplier. I, I, I reckon if we rang up Benioff, I'll get his number off Lucia, and say, come on, Benioff, what percentage of your salespeople are solution salespeople? I, re- I reckon he'd say quite a high degree. But I don't think they are. I think they sell a product. And they're yeah. product salespeople. And some people would argue the semantics of, well, it's a customised off-the-shelf solution. It's not. It's just product. It's, not. Selling. it's a product. You're shifting IP licences. You're selling kit. Just mm. soft kit. And I, think, and I think as since this book has been written, and since this book, you know, I remember back in 09, this book really, really caught people's imaginations. Mm. Uh, and rightly so. I think it was a bit of a paradigm shift at the time. Um, but since then, the world has changed. And actually, the real rock star companies, if we're going to use that word, none of them are selling solutions. No, they're not. By definition. Not yeah, what's the, well, yeah, yeah. How many security vendors sell a solution? None. none. They sell product. Nine yeah, out of ten. About- 99% of them. Uh, Snowflake. Big, sexy IPO people can't stop talking about. What do they sell? It's a product. Correct. Completely agree. They shift product. That's it and all about it. So getting back to the book then, he talks about the customer burden of solutions. And he mentions, page eight, this question that so many candidates say to me that they use, what's keeping you up at night? What they're saying is they're rubbishing. The the, the book is rubbishing that question. He's rubbishing that question, and rightly so. 
Absolutely rightly so. And actually, he's sort of talking about discovery a lot and saying, Let's keep really? Keep but now, acid reflux, mate. Yeah, and but but let's say you dealt with you know a recruiter and they went, "Hey, Jonathan, what's keeping you up at night?" I'd get annoyed. I'd just get annoyed. I'd get vexed. Yeah, and in it's fairness insane. to and in fairness to this book, he's saying, "Listen, that's a stupid question. Don't do that. This is a better way of doing it." Yeah, and, he's, and they're absolutely right about that. I think. Um, and they talk about the, the, so, and I'm going to go back to the solution selling thing a bit because that's for me my issue with the essential premise of the book because the book is written about solution selling. It's about it's supposed to be a framework for an environment in which you're doing a solution sale. I don't think there's as much solution selling taking place now. It's interesting that you read it like that. I didn't read it that it was a framework for doing solution selling. Yeah, actually. that's pretty much what what they're saying is that the the challenger sale is the latest paradigm for the complex solution-driven sale. I've not read it like that, that actually, at all. And then the, the other thing that they're talking about is the burden, the customer burden of solutions. Rise of consensus-based sale. Is selling any more consensus-driven than it was 20 years ago? Maybe. Who knows? I don't know. You have to. It, it does seem quite well um, researched, so you just have yeah. to say. Increased risk aversion. Now, I don't agree with that. Um, they're saying that most that, that procurement has become more and more risky. I think procurement has never been less risky than it is right now. Um, I don't know. Well, it's it. We've Surely been risked. it depends on individuals' aversion to risk. Yeah, but the SaaS environment de-risks procurement. You've never so. Since the book was written, buyers have never had as much information about a solution. They've never had as much ability to reference the success of an implementation of a solution with other people. So, we, you know, we're much more social now. Social networking is so powerful. If I was going to go out and buy SAP tomorrow, I could socially network with 50 SAP users and know where I'm at before I buy it. Fair enough. Yeah. I, 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 I can go on YouTube. I can. There's there's so much more data and information that de-risks my purchase. So in 2009, when the book came out, yes, it was risky. It was risky to buy a big enterprise solution in inverted commas. It's less risky now because I can ring up my mates. I can message them. I can go on. I could go on LinkedIn tomorrow, and I could put out a LinkedIn message saying, "Hi, I'm thinking of buying X tomorrow." Recruitment product X. Can anybody in hashtag recruitment tell me what their thoughts are? And I could just get a endless deluge of opinion-based data from people that aren't the supplier. So it just de-risks it for me. Okay, fair enough. Apologies for that. I had to turn the heater off in my, in my office. It was getting very, very warm. <laughs> um, <laughs> I'm sat in a jumper with a window open. It's get, it's it's gone wintry, hasn't it, Mike? So uh, then they talk about a greater demand for customization and a widening talent gap. Yes, so yeah. in transactional selling environment, the performance gap between the average and rock star performers is fifty nine percent. The star performer sells about one and a half times as much as the core performer. However, in companies with solution selling models, the distribution is very different. There, they outperform outperform by almost 
the gap is four times greater. Put another way, the sales become more complex. The gap between core and star performers widens dramatically. Uh, I've written that I think it's, I'm much less convinced that it's a talent gap. And I'm more convinced that, that they've missed something in the data there around environment. Oh yeah. Yeah. That, you know, well, all right, look at Dave. He sucks. He's shit. All right. What does he do? Oh, he sells oil and gas. All right. Okay. Right. I, don't know. I'm not, I, I don't know. I'm not, I'm, I'm not up for disagreeing with data really personally. Okay. And they say you've got to put a big corporate bear hug around your stars. They're carrying the day for you. One head of sales in business services told us recently that of their hundred sales reps, two were responsible for bringing in 80% of the company's revenue. I wrote here that head of sales should be fired with immediate effect. What a tool. That's the business's fault. Okay. You don't agree? You got a hundred odd salespeople and only two are smashing it. You know, something's, the truth the, the, that tells the, the, me something's fundamentally wrong with the company. The, tr- the truth is, I don't care, actually. I, I, I think you're always going to get into a situation where w- one person outperforms another. <laughs> you know, that's just life, isn't it? I, I, of course it is. You know, with, with all of these things, a bit later in the book, they talk about training and learning development and blah, blah, blah. My person, you know, my personal thoughts on it, Jonathan, is give somebody a good environment, give them the product and, sp- and help that they need. If they fail, fire them. If they make it, they make it. <laughs> you know, and 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 it, and it's sort of that simple. So in that scenario, you know, that sales manager, he should have fired loads of people, shouldn't he? <laughs> yeah, he's got ninety odd percent of his team under underperforming. Just fire him. What's he doing? What's yeah. he doing? <laughs> Anyway, uh, uh, yeah, but, but I read it in a bit of a. I just don't care, actually. No, and I do think I do think that a little bit about this book. It's sort of fifty pages too long. It just waffles on at times. Yeah, I mean, I, I, look, it, it gets. I think at the next show we do, we'll get into really good nitty gritty because we'll get to chapter five, teaching for differentiation, part two. Well, let's let's get build. let's get into these now because we've been but talking the, for what, ages and actually yeah, got anywhere. What, what we're actually talking about here, they talk about the sample. I, I was concerned about the sample, Mike. Um, there was a comment here. To figure this out, we surveyed hundreds of frontline sales managers. So what I don't get here is what we've got is a, a selling paradigm that has become massively uptaken back in 2009-2010. That selling paradigm is based on what's meant to be very rigorous research. Yet the researcher in the book is telling me, and I'm just playing the devil's advocate, I'm being a bit of a dick really. The research is saying, we surveyed hundreds of frontline sales managers across 90 companies around the world. If that research was rigorous, they wouldn't have said hundreds, would they, Mike? That's a little bit like a candidate saying his target was about a million. But to pick up on something that you said a moment ago, uh, was taken up by loads of, I don't think it was. I think actually if you read this book, all the way through, this isn't an individual. The challenger sale isn't an individual game; it's a team game. Marketing have yeah. got to write marketing content. Yeah, management have got to manage in a challenger way. Salespeople have got to toe the challenger line. And actually, whilst a few people might have read it and, ha- and taken some little pieces out of it that hopefully we'll get to, um, I don't know many companies really that absolutely fully adopted the challenger model. Actually. <laughs> You had a client. You had a an organisation. So what you're saying is at an organisational level where somebody at C level has gone right. 
Challenger model is our selling model now. Yeah, and is our marketing model. No. Because what Challenger's saying is your marketing model should reflect your Challenger sales model. So all the stuff on your website, all the stuff that you send out by spammy email, that should all be Challenger-focused. Now, in fairness, you had a client that you placed somebody called Rich with about two years ago, a year and a half, Mm -hmm. in the BI space. They were completely geared around Challenger. Marketing top-to-toe. Very co- a very cohesive organization. But that's my point about this is you said a lot of people adopted this. I don't think they did. I think a lot of people read it and put it on the CVs because it was a vogue selling style at the time. But I don't actually think many people have truly adopted it, really. How many CVs have you ever seen that are written in a challenger style model? I'll tell you now, I've never seen one. Ever. Okay. I think- I think people just read it and went on Vogue. So we'll get into it because I'm not knocking it per se because actually I think it is a good model. We're going to talk, learn about teaching and, you know, Tailoring all those things. and taking control. The, yes, absolutely. As we get into the model, I start to warm up a the lot. The model's good. It's a good model and it's very relevant. Um, and actually, so chapter two, the challenger part one and uh, 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 model five performance. So I'm going to just skip through what this guy's saying. Findings. So he's got his findings. In the, I'm reading. He's got his findings, yeah. The, ha- part, the hard work challenger, challenger. Part one. So it's a new model for high performance. And what they're basically saying is there are five types of salespeople in an organization. The hard worker, which is 21%. And it says here, hard worker's always willing to graft, doesn't give up, self-motivated, interested in feedback. The challenger always has a different view of the world, understands the customer's business, loves to debate, pushes the customer. Relationship builder, 21% of the sample. Build strong advocates, generous in giving time to help others, gets along with everyone. Lone wolf, follows own instincts, self-assured, difficult to control. Reactive problem solver, reliably responds to internal and external stakeholders, ensures all problems are solved, detail-oriented. And it's funny because as you read through it, you could think of 20 salespeople that you know who would fit each of those criteria, couldn't you? Well, when I put her onto page 22, can't people just be a mix? They can, but actually, I know there's lots who neatly fit into those criteria. I think people are a mix. I think the good ones are a mix, personally. And I also revert back to the point Shelrose Chavez made in Words That Change Minds, which is that people are, people change in a context-specific way. Yeah. Context is king. Um, and and, And I think that there is one person who could be a relationship builder at Company X and a challenger in Company Y. And a lone yeah. wolf in company Z, depending on the context and the environment. Fair enough. And I think they probably missed that a little bit in the in the research. So I'm not going to go into the depths of what each one constitutes, but I think we can pretty much tell. And then they eulogize the challenger. And I think we should give the debate that should give the audience the definition here of, of what they define as a challenger. Go on then. The debaters on the team, they have a deep understanding of the customer's business and use that understanding to push the customer's thinking and teach them something new about how their company can compete more effectively. They're not afraid to share their views, even when they're different and potentially controversial. Challenges are assertive. They tend to press customers a little, both on their thinking and around things like pricing. And as many sales leaders will tell you, they don't reserve their challenger mentality for customers alone. They tend to push their own managers and senior leaders within their own organizations not in an annoying, aggressive manner, mind you, then we'd simply have to call this profile the jerk, but in a way that forces people to think about the complex issues from a different perspective. That's their definition. 
Yep. And then they talk about finding two, one clear winner and one clear loser. Uh, it says here, while there are maybe five ways to be average, there's clearly a dominant way to be a star. And that by far is the challenger profile, comprising nearly 40% of all high performers in our study. Fair enough. And what they basically say is there are three things challengers do, teach, tailor, and take control of the sale. It said only 7% of all star performers fell into the relationship builder profile, far fewer than any other. I agree with that. One of the uh, first things I always worry about is when a candidate says, my clients are my mates. Well, you know, I'm not a fan of that vernacular. No. But then I'm dealing with the US, you know, a lot of the US guys, they're really into that. Well, really it's weird. It. It's weird, Mike, because... I've probably played more golf with customers in the last three months than I have in my whole life. And that's real relationship building stuff, but some of that's really paying off for us now. Yeah. And that's just uh, pure relationship stuff. Now it might be that actually I've said a few quite challengery things on the golf course. Now I think about it. Well, that's, your po- that's my point about you can't put somebody into a bucket, can you? No. You know, it mixes across the three, I think. But anyway. Okay. Um, So many organizations struggle with the migration to solutions. The world of solution selling is almost definitely about a disruptive sale. And I've written here, I don't think many companies are built and designed and scaled to be in the solution business in 2020. Yeah, I I don't think they care. I think if I'm a venture capitalist and I'm investing in a company in 2020, the last thing I want is to be putting my money into some business that makes effectively a customized solution on each sale. That is agree, yeah. no use to me whatsoever. So I think that my issue with the book thus far is I'm sat here thinking this is dated because the world doesn't work that way. Actually, that's not the way economics is driving. People don't want to buy quote unquote customized solutions. And actually, you know, you look at, you do a lot of work with the low-code vendors now. That's the absolute antithesis of customized solutions. Correct, yeah. It, 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 that, it, the world is, a, is going away from these customized solutions because actually we can do more stuff ourselves. And the problem with a customized solution-driven environment is it's antithetic to scale. I agree. Yeah, yeah. You know, if, so, if 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 you were honest about whether you're a product salesperson or a solutions guy, you just wouldn't read the book. You know, I go back to a reference of Salesforce. Should Salesforce implement the challenger sale based on what this man has said? No. No. Not at all. No. You know, okay. Salesforce comes as a sandbox environment that you customize to your liking, but the customers customize it. Exactly. Anyway, let's, all the, all let's, the partners customize it. If I work for Salesforce, I, I, all I'm doing is selling the dream. Well, just How customizable you're, you're not selling product, are you? No, I'm just selling you're the selling dream. The I'm selling the brand. It, I, it might have been a while ago you were selling the product, but now you're just selling the brand. Yeah, correct. So page 33, we actually get something that I actually like. <laughs> Good eh? Which, Which is a Venn diagram. Love a good Venn diagram. I know, Mike. That's because and, you're a process person for those people who uh, listen to our last most scintillating few yes, podcasts. And the uh, Venn diagram says there's three circles. Those who teach, those who tailor, are those who take control. And the shady bit in the middle 
are the challenger salespeople. Literally, that is the best page in the book. They should have put that right at the start for me. That explains what. Well, it's not three different types of people. It's they're the thing. They're behaving. They have those characteristics. Yeah, they're They're the characteristics. Teaching, tailoring, and taking control. And that is the premise and the best bit of the book, I think. Okay. It's a simple explanation, isn't it? And what they're saying is the what they're saying is the challenger teaches in order to differentiate. Yeah, I mean, we'll go into that in a good bit of detail, I suspect. I can't remember what the next chapter's called, but it might be called teaching. Um, yeah, I mean, and then they talk about taking control of the sale. Now, before we go any further, it's important to note that being assertive does not mean being aggressive or worse still, annoying or abusive. It's about an intensity, isn't it? And a controlling a deal. All the good ones we deal with, they control, they're control freaks. Not in an yes. aggressive way. Yes, they are. Yeah, very much. So. I, I, was thinking I, I do agree. I do agree with that part of the challenger sale. Is if I look back and I look at all the real superstars I've ever worked with in my career, they will wrestle control of a recruitment campaign when you're working with them. They will just instinctively do it. Yeah, yeah, hundred percent. And you're often sat there thinking, "Hold on a minute, my candidate's talking directly to my client, and he's just completely controlling this." And it's not because they're arseholes, it's because that's just what they do. What are your thoughts on teaching being free consulting? Because um, you get a lot of people say, don't give away free consultancy. I- I'm a bit of a fan of a little bit of light free consultancy, and I actually think that's a bit of teaching at the same time. Yeah, well, I-, I-, I don't like that. Co- that's a Sandler thing, not giving away free consultancy. Personally, I'll give away a bit of free consultancy. Me too. And I, I think that's what... It predominantly comes back to you in a positive way. I did yeah, some I think, last I week for yeah. 45 minutes. I've got a follow-up call as a result of it. I've helped a prospect work through what a job spec might look like. I've done a bit of teaching in that conversation. Well, teaching is take, free consultancy, isn't it? That's what it yeah. is. And he has taken that to a board meeting on Monday. And if that goes all right... I'll be staring down the barrel of a sales leadership job spec today, paying about 90k base. So it might not, he might not have got his, he might not have been able to convince the board it's what he wants. But if he can, if he can, I've helped him do it and I'm going to be getting the job spec today. So it would have been, it was worth a punt for a 45 minute call. But Sandler would say that's free consultants that Johnny White. Sandler's an idiot because actually, even if he doesn't hire a sales leader now, at some point he'll hire a salesman and he knows Johnny Graham's his guy. I mean, I do agree with you. You know, 100% I agree with you. Um, but and I agree with the book, actually. I think the book, the teaching model, I think that's absolutely 100% right. And, you know, the, the, the title of chapter four is Teaching for Differentiation. Now, I think, what, I, I think what happens, but I never see my competitors speak to any of the prospects that I'm pitching with. I think the prospects ask me something, you know, about X, Y, Z. And as you know, I get my Venn diagram out. I think if they asked one of my competitors the same question and ask for their opinion, I think the, the prospect would come back to me first. So I think teaching is in, it, in and itself is a sales methodology. However, my only downside of teaching is, I think teaching from a salesperson creates a recruitment problem because so, I can only hire experts in, my, in that field. Whereas I actually think teaching needs to come from the marketing literature that goes out 
They do point to, that out later on in the book. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think that, that you've got to be careful about that. Because actually, if you're reliant on you as being the teacher, you're just not getting any real return. You know, you're doing Johnny Graham's doing 45 minutes over and over and over and over and over again. Whereas actually, should Jonathan Graham have done a white paper or should Jonathan Graham have done a video or indeed me? You know, I draw my Venn diagram every single time I sit down with a client. Should I have had that Venn diagram done nicely as a teaching tool and said, right, listen, look at that. There's two points for me on this, Mike. The first point is the problem with teaching is I can't get a 23-year-old to teach. Correct, yeah. But, but nor can, you know, I, I agree with you, by the way, um, but let's say I was I was selling Tom Moody, know. Oliver Frankel, Jacob. No, was, so they uh, all nice lads, all work for us. None of them. The one thing they all lacked was credibility. They didn't have that ability to tell a customer something about their business. They didn't. Know. Well, well, well. There's more than that. Let's say because you're because life. It's because time served in the game. Well, yeah, exactly. But let's say you're an ERP company who sells the retail market. You followed your challenger methodology, and the salesperson does the teaching. You can only ever hire an ERP sales guy who knows the retail market. Whereas if you looked at your organizational structure and said teaching is important to us, we're going to get marketing to do the teaching. Yeah. Then you've got a much wider field because actually you could hire an ERP guy who'd sell to manufacturing or, you know, whatever. So you've got to be careful about this model, even though I do think teaching is the right way to talk to a prospect first off. And furthermore, it makes it antithetic to the concept of scaling. Although, well, well although, actually, I did circle scalability in the previous chapter on page 34 when he started talking about it. And I said, I've got a few clients who market and sell around this way, but scalability is always their problem. I'll tell you though, Mike, we've talked about it on this show before. You and I both remember Parametric Technology Corporation back in the 90s. Yeah, yeah, 100%. So they were one of the absolute first movers in what was then... <laughs> A bleeding edge technology that is computer-aided design software and product lifecycle management software. Yes. It's all, it was red hot at the time. It yeah, yeah. All the rage. But what they did, and they were very clever with, was they had a very good model, a yes. very good sales methodology. They had the teaching and tailoring and taking control tools, and then they shipped the salespeople. They hired brilliantly of extremely smart, young, aggressive, driven males. They then shipped them to America and rammed it down their throats for 20 hours a day for 12 weeks until they were walking, talking machines that could sell CAD software. Now, actually, what surprises me is nobody does that anymore. And I think partly that's because your Gen Z or whatever they are, they won't have it. They won't do it. They won't... They won't go in a highly pressured 20-hour-a-day sales boot camp where they walk out as a perfect, modelled, scripted version of the sales process. They won't have it. They won't do it. And so it's impossible to hire them. But they actually did teach Taylor and Take Control with yes. what was a paradigm-shifting product at its time. And they did it in the early 90s, mate. I completely late, agree. late 90s, sorry. Late 90s. No, I completely agree. And they scaled and they made fortunes, those people. Yes. I don't know what became of them now. Do they still exist? Oh, very much so, yeah. I think they're a definite player alongside Dasso and Ansys, I would have thought. Right. 
It's just not a market really know, we're sort of not a market we've really gone near, not, is it? It's not our market really, is it? No. And then then we're into chapter four, teaching for differentiation part one. Why insight matters. Um, I think that's uh, what that's what I'm on actually when I was talking about teaching. That's what got me going with it, really. Yeah, so they're saying the idea being if we just dig deep enough to find the story behind the story, we'll eventually get to a place where customers are so forthcoming about what they truly need right there on the spot that we can craft a highly targeted offer that provides the perfect solution to their problem. They're saying that's just not how it rolls anymore. I think that's sort of fair, really, isn't it? Yeah, very much so. Um, and it says that challengers win by not understanding their cust- by not by understanding their customer's world as well as the customers know it themselves, but by actually knowing their customer's world better than their customers know it themselves. Which is fair. I was really naive. Um, really naive that I, I I know a lot about IT sales recruitment, like loads about it, miles more than my clients. But do I know more than um, my AI software vendor in their world? No. <laughs> no. The other problem is the information is ubiquitous. Yes, that's true. This, uh, uh, what can you really teach your customer? Now, I'll tell you now. That has changed in the past 10 years, as you've said earlier. Right? I, I have a little pitch that I do about data and candidate data and information that does make clients sit back and they go, when I do it with them, they all go, oh, God, right, I never thought of that. When, I'm, when they're explaining, why would you deal with inward revenue? What do you do that's so different? And I do this little pitch about data and the ubiquity of data and the ubiquity of candidate information and how that's changed over the years and how we manage that. Da, 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 da. But actually, I don't know, I just go back to any technology you're doing with that client that's in the AI space at the moment. I do think, for example, in the AI space, it's still not that much info. So you still can teach now. Well, I think there's a real difference between selling to a developed and an undeveloped, undeveloped need. market. Yes. Undeveloped need. Because I think in the AI space, you know, that's solving problems that the client didn't really realize there was a solution to. Whereas if I'm selling computer hardware, you know, servers, or if I'm selling rack space, you know, as hosting, then it's quite different, isn't it? Because it's a Yeah, what are you going to teach your customer? All oh, right, uh, I'm going to move this environment into a cloud environment. Wait, AWS. Okay. Have, you, have you ever heard of AWS? Great, yeah. okay. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, are you really, really teaching that customer? What are you going to teach them that they don't already know? Some senior level IT guy. Well, exactly. come on. I don't think, and, if the, and I will challenge any listener that is in the cloud computing space to ring me and tell me they know stuff about cloud computing the customers don't know. Yeah, completely agree. In an enterprise environment. Oh, yeah, I'm thinking about moving this into the cloud. Yeah, right, brilliant. Oh, well, let me teach you something. Let me tell you something you don't know. Ah, come on. They know as much as you. Most of them have gone and got degrees in computer science. They're bright guys, and they've done their own work before you've walked in the room, and they've got so much data, and they've rung 10 of your customers before you've even known that they were customers of your business. Because they can agree. put them on LinkedIn easily. So I do think that does, I don't think it rubbishes the book because I do think there are contexts in which you can still. Yeah, I mean, we're picking apart the concept of teaching and I, and I think teaching is a good thing to do. I, yeah. I don't want to suggest that, that it's but, not. But I do think it, it must be is. much more difficult than it was in 2010. Probably. I mean, on page 59, he says, 
Rep offers unique and valuable perspectives on the market. Rep helps me navigate alternatives. Rep provides ongoing advice or consultation. Rep helps me avoid potential landmines. Rep educates me on new issues and outcomes. And I do think, as an example, you've got some fellow who works at AWS, who he's selling to BMW, as an example. He does have some advice to offer that says, you know, we sold a similar thing to Mercedes-Benz and this is what happened. Yeah. I think I think that's where it comes in, but it's got to be, you know, it's got you know, you've got to be careful. It's interesting. Quite often, I say to clients, so I've got a couple of client calls this afternoon, and I'm sure I'll, I know what one of them is going to look for before I've spoken to him for whatever reason, and he's going to say, "I want that," and I'm going to say, "Listen, my advice is that if you look for that, you will end up with this, and then you will have wasted a month." And then you'll be a month further behind target. Rather than look for that now, my suggestion is you should run two campaigns, A, to look for that, and B, to look for this, which I think you'll end up looking for in a month. I'd say there's 50-50 chance he'll just ignore what I say and look for A. And he'll look for A, and then a month down the line, he'll go, oh, buddy, oh, Mike, you told me so. And I think there's a point of educating from experience and teaching from experience that's relevant to him. And I'm is, sure that, I, is that teaching or is that the provision of wise counsel? I think I think they're the same thing in that context. And if you go back to Salesforce, guys, you know, not to knock Salesforce for any reason, obviously very successful. There's going to be a Salesforce rep who's outselling to HSBC, uh, who's who are moving from Microsoft, who are considering moving from Microsoft CRM, and he's going to go, listen, I'm glad you're moving to Salesforce. I really hope you do, but when we moved Barclays from there to there, this is what happened. Have you thought about X? And that point, he's sort of teaching a little yeah, bit. Yeah, then, then he's bringing value to the conversation. Yeah, exactly. And that's where I think this part of teaching comes and that, in. And their point is that there, is a, there, is two, there are two different things a customer can say. The customer saying, yeah, I totally agree. That's bad news because the customer already knew what you were telling him. What yeah. they're saying is, if the customer's saying, oh, God, I never thought of that. That's when you're teaching. Exactly. And, that's and if the customer's sat there going, oh, shit, never thought of that. Good well, point. you're going to win the sale, aren't you? That, uh, then you've uh, got uh, Well, it's interesting because the problem I had this morning, not problem, uh, yeah, problem I would say, is I had a candidate in the frame, sales leadership role, candidates pulled out of it, completely get wise pulled out of it. Candidate's a nice guy. I've not, you can't knock him. He's very fair and he's a very fair reason for it. And I said to the client, I said, listen, you know, politely, <laughs> Four weeks ago, I told you that you needed to do this. And now you're sat here with one candidate in the frame. You're fretting. We're four weeks down the line. This is what you need to do. And he's replied with, okay, Mike, that's what we'll do. Yeah. Now, he's a nice, pragmatic guy. Maybe I didn't, you know, shout hard enough early on. And but I'm sure the you're taking con- you're, both, you're both, you've taught him. He's not listened. And now you're taking control. Yeah, and I've said, right, this is what we're going to do. I'm going to spend two weeks on it. Two weeks from today, you need to give me your diary two weeks from today. You need to give me a colleague's diary three weeks from today. You need to give me a colleague's colleague's diary four weeks from today. Now, believe it or not, that's going to take us toward the end of October. You've then got a month, maybe two months notice. This is, this is going to be a starter on the 1st of January. Yeah, and oh, pretty much sw- all the work we're doing now is yeah. going to be starters, aren't they? But we swapped a few emails to and forth, and I didn't turn around and go, listen, I bloody told you so. But I think there's a point with teaching, which teaching allows you to take control. I also think with the teaching thing, and it is sort of mentioned in the book, 
is I think a lot of people are going to try and teach by way of canvassing. So their introduction is going to be one of teaching, which is, did you know that a load of our clients do this and actually that's the wrong thing to do. I think you should be doing this and this is what will happen. I think that's where it needs to be integrated between sales and marketing. I'll tell you something. Um, You've made a very interesting point here, Mike. And I don't, okay. I, I think that you yourself didn't quite realize how good a point you made, um, which is that teaching creates control. Oh, it does. Yeah, absolutely. That's how you take, it creates credibility. I, I think that a good enough teaching point creates control of the sale. Without any doubt. And I see, I see that a lot. I'm, one of my favorite games, I've got a client at the moment, um, care software. Ugh. Not very glamorous. It's not exactly AI, cool AI stuff, but you know, their bills... Pay, they, we, we sit on different <laughs> sides of the fence, you and I, Jonathan. They, they pay the bills the same as everyone yeah, else. Yeah, Good market. The, the bank manager doesn't care who all the client looks like. No, I um, know who they are. They're a really good client. Fantastic company, actually. And um, it gives me a spec. And I always say to him, do you know how many salespeople there are in this market? No. And he always says, no, I don't. And also, I'll tell you how many there are. There's about 130 of them. And at any given point in time, you're normally looking at about eight to 10% of the market looking for a job. But given the current climate, you can pretty much narrow that down to about six to seven. So I reckon there's probably about seven of them looking for a job and we probably already know who those are and you probably already know them. All right, well, go out and find me one anyway. And then I always come back a week later and say, right, here's what I've done. These I've got this guy, people. Bill Bloggs. Got, and he goes, oh, not him. Oh God, not him. And then at that point, I go, right, so here's what I'm going to do now. I'm just going to get you a guy who knows public sector who's up for life. Brilliant idea, Johnny. But that gives that ability to know my stuff, to be able to give him that data like that, to, to teach him, this is where we're going to be in two weeks. You're going to be telling me to get you as a public sector guy. Gives me the opportunity two weeks later to say, right, just go out and find me a good bloke. Mm, mm, mm. So I think that was a really interesting point from you is the, the, the good teaching creates control of the sale. Yeah, 100% it does, yeah. I'm sure. Rather than taking control in and of itself as an independent factor. Now, in fairness to when you read the book and he talks about taking control, he, he sort of says that in a roundabout way, really. Do they? Yeah, I think so. I think, you know, your word control has negative connotations. But I think at some point, somebody, you know, it's a bit like, I've never dealt with them, but I suspect that if, uh, you know, you did a piece of consulting work because you were selling your business and you use KPMG, you'd go, right, how do I do it? They'd go, right, do it like this. This is how we're going to do it. KPMG are in control because they know what they're doing. If your prospect sees value in what you do and your experience, they'll give you control. They'll go, right, what do we need to do? Of course they do. In the what same way that do? we give our doctor control. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Right, doctor, yeah. what have I got to do to get better? Yeah, yeah. I, I've got a pain in my right arm, you know, my tricep. If I went to a doctor and he said, listen, you've really got to cut your arm off, otherwise you're going to get a pain in your left, left, left <laughs> tricep and... Then you could have no arms. I'd think, oh God, that's it's a bit all right. Let's cut my arm. Although I did meet a physiotherapist a year ago who told me that to cure my golfer's elbow, I had to put my tongue in the roof of my mouth. Really? You were paid for that and as that well, though, you? And, and that I had to sit there all day with my tongue in the roof of my mouth. And that actually my real issue was my bite. And that that was affecting my elbow. I didn't did see him again. Him? I paid him and didn't see him again. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, we must be about done on this book. We now, are. Really. So where that's taken us, Mike, is uh, it's been an interesting conversation today. And, and having what's been good is it, there's a lot more to think about in this. And I do think whilst the book possibly is dating a little bit, teaching 
as the first of the three key elements of a challenger is still relevant and still a useful thing to think about. And we're going to get into the nitty gritty next week of actually how to build an insight-led sales conversation, which I'm quite excited about. You'll like it because there's lots of little scales. Yeah, yeah, I like a good diagram. I think there are there's lots of, of diagrams, and, and, lots of scales, and a few flow charts. And you know, with this book, you know, the question is always that I get on LinkedIn is, Mike, should I read the book? I'd say, yeah, read it. Oh, yeah, this isn't, there's no debate. Read this one. Yeah, yeah, I'd definitely, I'd definitely read it. I mean, read this I'll, one, I'll, but remember there's context here, particularly around how the world has evolved since the book was written and the study was done. Yeah, 100%. I'd read it. Good. So we're into it. It's one of three shows. See you next week for the Nitty Gritty. Thank you. Goodbye. Goodbye.